This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week you're going to hear from two leaders at the Oncology Institute of Hope and Innovation, TOI. TOI is a practice that is advancing oncology by delivering highly specialized value-based cancer care in the community setting. They offer cutting-edge evidence-based cancer care to a population of approximately 1.6 million patients including clinical trials, stem cell transplants, transfusions, and other care delivery models traditionally associated with the most advanced healthcare organizations. They have 80-plus employed clinicians, more than 600 team members, and more than 50 locations and growing. It seems, Daniel, that TOI really is a practice that's changing oncology for the better. Yeah, I agree, Eric. And we had a great conversation with these gentlemen Brad Hively is the chief executive officer of the Oncology Institute of Hope and Innovation, and he joined the Institute as a member of its board of directors in 2018 and and assumed the role of CEO in 2019. He brings over 20 years of executive leadership and healthcare experience to the Oncology Institute. And Dr. Daniel Vernich joined the Oncology Institute in 2020, and as president, he oversees operations, clinical compliance marketing, physician dispensary, and human resources department at TOI. And he believes in focusing on clinician and teammate culture as a key to driving great oncology care and the best patient outcomes. Well, I think Brad and Dan are well positioned to discuss how value-based care is transforming the way cancer care is delivered, providing higher quality care at a lower cost. As the first specialty value-based care company to go public, TOI went public back in November of 2021, They've become one of the largest oncology practices in the U.S., and it's also one of the leading physician-led, patient-centric providers delivering on the promise of high-value outcomes-based cancer care. So without further ado, let's hear from Brad and Dan as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Brad and Dan, it's such a great pleasure to have you on the podcast this week. Thanks for joining us in a discussion about the great work TOI is doing to disrupt a massive, unaffordable, and inefficient oncology market. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Well, here at the Race to Value podcast, we're evangelists for value-based care transformation in order to improve quality and lower costs in our system and the financial stats of healthcare, and we all know them. 
you know, 18% of GDP, upwards of $4 trillion in spend, 11000 per capita. It's just frightening to think about where this puts us in terms of uh, being on an unsustainable financial trajectory. And those numbers are projected to increase, and every sector of healthcare is under scrutiny for how to control spending while maintaining or improving quality. And the cost of cancer care, which includes both medical services and drugs, continues to increase at an alarming rate. In 2015, cancer care was about $190 billion. And just five years later in 2020, the cost ballooned up to $209 billion, an increase of about 10%. And that's primarily attributed to the aging and the growth of the U.S. population. And there's so much reason to be somber about the economics of the oncology market. But TOI seems like it's making a difference through your scalable, replicable model that's really going after addressing affordability and inefficiency. I've seen how you guys reduce costs by 25% compared to your average PMPM costs for others in the oncology sector. So I wanted to start our conversation today by asking you if you could provide our listeners with a perspective on why the industry needs to transition from volume to value. How is it better for industry in terms of savings potential, better for patients in terms of improved patient outcomes and experience, and better for physicians and their care teams in terms of collaboration? And what is TOI doing specifically to disrupt this massive market with ever-accelerating cost growth driven by misalignment, complex, and variable clinical pathways and high-cost drugs in the oncology space? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to start. And by the way, uh, this is Brad, so that you'll recognize my voice. I, th- I thought your, your intro was very well said. You described the problem very well. When you think about the sources of low-value care in this country, there are many, and there, there is low-value care in every medical specialty. And we are trying to seek out and eliminate that low-value care in oncology. At a high level, one of the reasons that oncology is such a big focus is, A, it is very expensive. Oncology is typically the third most expensive specialty for a senior population. The big four are ophthalmology, cardiology, oncology, and orthopedics, typically in that order. But the thing about oncology is that it's growing three times faster than those other specialties. Uh, So it's not going to be long until oncology is the most expensive specialty for every senior plan in the country. And, and the challenge with that, in some ways, spending a lot of money on, on oncology is good because it, it means that we're developing new drugs, oftentimes treating previously untreatable diseases, which is fantastic. But the interesting thing is when national payers or risk-bearing primary care groups look across markets, many of the people we work with are national in scale. And so they've got populations of patients in all 50 states or or many, many states. And they look across that population and they see that from state to state, there can be a two to three times multiple difference in what it costs to provide oncology care. And again, that, that would actually be okay if we were getting better outcomes in the more expensive markets, but we're not. Actually, there's no correlation between the cost and the quality. So these national payers are looking around and saying, you know, hey, how do we replicate the high-value markets? Some of these markets are, you know, the, 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 where it costs half as much to provide oncology care, but the outcomes are just as good as better. How do we replicate those markets all across the country? 
And that's, that's what TLI represents. We've been able to get better outcomes for our patients at about 25% lower cost of care. Predominantly, that, that, that particular study that we're quoting that we published was done in California. The national payers are saying, hey, can you replicate what you've done in, in California throughout the rest of the country? And that's uh, been the catalyst for our growth. I think that for listeners to your podcast who might not be familiar with why oncology is you know, growing so quickly in terms of the, the cost to the healthcare system and what it is about the specialty that is leading to kind of a misalignment of incentives and a, a trend away from value, you really need to understand how reimbursement works in oncology. And that is that unlike a lot of the specialties, like, for example, internal medicine, where most of your revenue comes from E&M codes, which are based on physician face-to-face visits with patients in oncology, the lion's share of the revenue, 85 plus percent, comes from the drugs. And for fee-for-service practices, which are the vast majority of practices in the U.S. that are, that are in oncology, those drugs are reimbursed at a cost plus 6% methodology. So there's a natural incentive for practices to prescribe the most expensive drugs because that obviously creates the most impact to the bottom line if you're a uh, practice owner. There's something called the NCCN guidelines, which are the, the comprehensive guidelines that are used in oncology to determine when treatments create the most efficacy. And that's really what we strive to adhere to. If you look at community-based practices in oncology, the average adherence to NCCN guidelines is somewhere around 70%. We're well over 90%. So our focus first is on efficacy. And when you just do that, a lot of times you can choose treatments that are, are much less expensive because um, you're you know, divorcing yourself from those cost plus incentives. That's a great overview. Appreciate you guys starting us off with that. I'd like to jump in with this question. As, as an oncology practices transition to value-based care, they're challenged to take on more holistic responsibility for their patients. And that transformation has been driven by the Medicare program with the oncology care model, a payment model that incentivizes oncology providers to make impactful workflow changes and achieve cost and quality of improvements. And the OCM payment model has now ended after six years and is being replaced by the Enhancing Oncology Model, the EOM, which is a new program being launched by CMMI on July 1, 2023. With this change, there will be a one-year gap between the OCM ending and the EOM beginning, requiring practices to make extensive investments and operational changes to benefit patients without reimbursement. And in this new EOM program, participating practices will be responsible for patient health quality and total spending during six-month episodes of care. And they can earn a performance-based payment or OCMS, a performance-based recoupment, if total expenditures for attributed episodes go beyond a certain threshold. It's a program that's been touted by CMS Administrator Chiquita Brooks-Lashore as an opportunity to advance President Biden's cancer moonshot goals to reduce the cancer death rate by 50% in 25 years and improve the lives of people living with cancer. Despite the lack of savings to date with the OCM program over six years, should we be optimistic that the new EOM program will be successful in challenging oncology practices to take on that more holistic responsibility for their patients? Yeah, sure. That's that's a good question. You know, you mentioned something about despite the lack of savings created by the OCM. And uh, I think, you know, that could be a little bit misleading. If you listen to Brad Smith talk about the CMMI's programs, part of the reason why they haven't shown as much savings as they wanted is because they were voluntary. Many of the oncology groups that were already doing high-value care chose to participate and did quite well. And those oncology groups that were not 
delivering high value care either did not participate at all or participated for a brief amount of time and then dropped out. Uh, and so I, I think it's important to note that it, it doesn't mean that groups that succeeded in OCM are not delivering high-value care, quite the opposite. But what it does mean is that we we didn't make as big of an impact as we wanted on transitioning some of the, the, the lowest-value providers from making that transition. In terms of our views on the EOM, first off, we were pleased to see that the program was announced, right? Because it wasn't assured that there would be any continuation of OCM. You know, we were really pleased with our results in the OCM program. We demonstrated consistently performance period in and period out that we were getting better outcomes for our patients at lower costs. That was generating nice bonus payments for us. Our patients loved it because they get extra care coordination services. And so we're big supporters of the OCM program. And, and we had been worried that maybe it would just end and nothing new would would take its place. And so we're, we're pleased that they have announced EOM, and we're pleased that there won't be too long of a gap in between OCM and EOM. It was just announced recently, and they're still taking comments. Uh, we haven't finished our you know full analysis on the, the differences between EOM and OCM. It does appear that, that EOM will be slightly more limited. You know, fewer cancer types will be included in the program. Also, the, you know, the monthly payments for care coordination appear to be lower. We're hopeful that, that, that those reductions will be offset in increased opportunities to earn profitability, to earn bonus payments. But, you know, we still got some work to do analyzing the numbers to see what the impact will be on TOI. But big picture, very pleased that CMOI has chosen to continue the program because of the great thing that it allows us to do for our patients. And because it allows us to demonstrate quarter in and quarter out that we're achieving our goal of, of being the nation's leading value-based oncology group. Just to add to what Brad said, I think there's a couple of elements that they've indicated have been added to the EOM program, which are definitely things that were missing in OCM, which I think will benefit patients greatly. One is obviously the focus on health equity. That's something that we've been focused on for a long time here at TOI with our commitment to serve underserved populations, but it's a real issue in cancer care for folks in the community that might have difficulty accessing care. And the other thing is the focus on patient navigation, regardless of how that's incentivized for anybody that's had a loved one or a friend go through a cancer diagnosis. You'll know firsthand that there's an incredible amount of coordination of care that's required between multiple specialists and your primary care physician and home health services and very, very challenging for patients. I think aligning that to performance in the model is going to be key benefit over, over what we had in OCM. Let's talk now about another alternative payment model that's impacting oncology right now, and, is that, and that's the controversial radiation oncology model. The RO radiation oncology model is designed to counter three flaws in current reimbursement for radiation therapy, which can contribute to high cost. I mean, first, you have the radiation therapy services that are reimbursed differently respective to the site at which they're furnished. Under current reimbursement methodology, freestanding radiation treatment centers are reimbursed at a lower rate but provide a greater number of treatments and more expensive therapies. Second, RT providers are reimbursed for every fraction of treatment regardless of the total dose, meaning the same dose of radiation would receive greater reimbursement if it were split into more fractions. And then lastly, CMS has identified difficulties in the coding and billing for radiation therapy due to the treatment's high volume and use of emergent technology resulting in potentially inappropriate payment rates. And 
the RO model aims to correct these payment inefficiencies by providing site-neutral episodic payments for all RT services provided to a beneficiary in a 90-day period. And what makes the upcoming RO model so controversial is that it's mandatory, which violates the spirit of which some of the other APMs that we've seen come out of CMMI. So I think the current projections that are out there are saying that this would cut reimbursement rates to oncologists by $160 million over five years, on top of the $140 million in cuts that are already due to some of the policy changes that are happening in the Medicare physician fee schedule. So I wanted to ask you, with so many in the oncology community having vocalized their opposition to the mandatory RO model. What is your perspective on this new APM and how do you think it'll support the transition to value-based oncology care? I think it's one long overdue. So I think it's, it's a good thing that this is now being developed. I think that, you know, compared to medical oncology, which is relatively new to value-based care, radiation oncology is even newer. So I'm not surprised at the amount of opposition in, in the community related to this, but radiation oncology has its own issues with misalignment of incentives. And I think the, the key components of this model hit that, which are, again, moving away from a kind of pay-per-click model to a, a bundle-based or episode-based model, trying to align incentives, again, towards treating with the right amount of radiation therapy rather than reimbursement based on you know how much you can give. So I think that's that's a critical component. And then there's additional incentives linking payment to quality, which again is a key feature of all of these programs. And I think it's something that's you know clearly not been a part of, of radiation oncology practice per se in the past, you know, there's obviously a lot of providers that that practice in, in a quality manner. So for us, I mean I think we view it in a very positive way. Um, radiation oncology is a natural continuity of care specialty for a lot of solid tumors that we treat. I and mean, it's something we're, you know, continuing to look at, at growing as part of our own business. So it's very aligned with what we do. I'd like to ask you both about the benefits of care coordination and care navigation in treating the whole patient as we think about the patient holistically. The leading oncology practices in the country seem to be integrating nutritionists, psychologists, social workers, and palliative care doctors into their care model to deliver higher value care. Interdisciplinary team collaboration is showing that it can improve communication and care outcomes, and it also improves health literacy in that patients can better obtain, process, and understand health information and services that enable sound health decision-making. Suboptimal health literacy is actually an independent risk factor for poor health outcomes, including increased risk of hospitalization. And cancer patients with poor health literacy may have misconceptions about their disease and ineffective communication with their health professionals, leading to unnecessary interventions, undertreatment, or poor adherence to their treatment plans. At TOI, you really seem to have that secret sauce in your playbook for implementing a patient-centered care model that shows results. Your patients receiving value-based care through gain-share contracts experience better quality with end-of-life cancer care. And they're more engaged in their care plans, resulting in 40% fewer inpatient admissions, 75% fewer ER admissions, and patient satisfaction scores that are 14% higher than traditional oncology care. Can you discuss the importance of the interdisciplinary team and that team-based care approach and how it supports reduced hospitalizations, reduced ED visits, that increased adherence to treatment plans, and and better patient experience in the oncology setting? And how does the patient-centric culture of TOI ultimately drive success in executing your playbook for value-based oncology care? I think you know what you basically just 
describing that question is kind of the, the crux of our high value cancer care program, which is really a, a key aspect of our care model here at the Oncology Institute that we've been doing for years and is what generates not just improved utilization for cancer patients, but more importantly, great clinical outcomes, improved patient satisfaction, and dramatic reductions in a patient's need to go to the emergency room or get admitted to the hospital for care that we can provide you know, appropriately in, in a much more comfortable setting in our outpatient clinics or at home. So cancer is really unique amongst medical conditions in the amount of interdisciplinary care coordination that it requires to make it through successfully as a patient for a couple of different reasons. One, it's a condition that requires coordination between typically multiple specialists. So oftentimes the medical oncologist is the quarterback of cancer care, but patients might also be interacting with a surgeon or a radiation oncologist or a pain management specialist. They also have their primary care physician that's still managing their other care needs. So there's an extreme amount of coordination required uh, once you receive a cancer diagnosis between multiple different physicians, which is not easy. The other thing that is unique about cancer care is it's high reliance oftentimes, especially unfortunately in advanced stages, on additional supportive care services. So that means home health, palliative care, outpatient rehab, and other supportive care services. So what we developed here at the Oncology Institute is essentially a very high-touch patient navigation program called our High Value Cancer Care Program. And what we do in that program fundamentally is we align patients, if they so wish, with a healthcare coach, which is a member of our TOI team. And that healthcare coach is really there for them 24-7, doing that translation function, helping those patients understand, here is why your oncologist referred you to this specialist. Here is why we're asking this home health service to visit your home. When you get nauseated or have pain at three o'clock in the morning, here's a resource you can turn to so that you don't have to go to the emergency department to get relief from your symptoms. And what we've shown by, by saying that for many, many years is that when you do provide that high touch care coordination, patients benefit significantly. Again, higher patient satisfaction, improved clinical outcomes, reduced acute care utilization, which is a huge driver of the cost uh, of care uh, associated with cancer in the U.S. And uh, patients generally find that they're having discussions with their provider that they wouldn't have otherwise had, which is you know, getting ahead of things like advanced care planning or you know, feeling more open about talking about their palliative care needs if they're experiencing significant pain related to their condition. So it's been a success for us. It's something we hope to scale. And we believe it's something that could be valuable, even if you're a non-value-based cancer care practice. It's just kind of the right thing to do for patients. So as we talk about your patient-centered culture and value-based care performance, we really have to recognize, I think, the importance of physician leadership. And this practice of medicine is more difficult than it's ever been in any other time in history. I mean, the pandemic notwithstanding, there are increasing demands on clinicians from patients, payers, administrators, and ever-expanding knowledge requirements. And with our healthcare system evolving towards an employed model, there's an opportunity to refocus attention on provider recognition, work-life balance, mental and physical health needs to address physician burnout. And just as important, however, we have to be thinking about how do we elevate physician voices into the C-suite to better represent the needs of both patients and those uh, clinical peers. Physicians and leadership are strengthened with their experience, their perspective of having empathy towards those in need and dealing with those that are 
experiencing formidable amounts of distress and suffering. It also provides a perspective to create a common bond with staff who also are dedicated in their careers and patient care. So I wanted to ask you, given the patient-centered model at TOI, there clearly has to be something there in terms of your physician culture and in how you approach value-based oncology care. Can you discuss the impact that physician leadership has on clinical quality, patient outcomes, employee retention, and what does TOI do to structure its physician compensation model to align to the quality and the patient satisfaction goals to ensure that you're performing on your value-based care contracts? So I'll address the physician leadership portion of your question first, and then we can talk a bit about what we do related to compensation and total rewards for our physicians to um, drive physician satisfaction and align them to practice great value-based oncology care. So physician leadership for the Oncology Institute is really a a fundamental value for us and something that we strive uh, to promote at every level in the organization. Every clinical decision we make, every policy or protocol related to patient care that we implement, whenever we consider adding a new therapeutic to our order sets or implementing a new specialty or entering a new payment model, such as we discussed earlier, physician leader is is a critical aspect of that decision-making process. For us, it's just part of what we do. We follow a dyad structure like most healthcare organizations where at every level in the organization, operators paired up with a clinical partner, recognizing the fact that, again, oncology is an incredibly complex specialty, and two, that the very complex and, and rapidly changing nature of our specialty requires really clinical leadership expertise in order for our business to run effectively. In terms of compensation for our physicians, we believe we have a model which is really the most favorable for oncologists out there in the market today. We do not seek to follow a highly pyramidal structure where we've got a couple of very senior partners at the top, you know, making most of their money on, on the backs of, of younger physicians who are doing all the work. We also do not incentivize physicians based on the volume of care they deliver or work RVUs as a heavy focus, you know, meaning the more encounters they do or the more care they deliver, the more they make. We just don't feel like that's the right way to drive great care. We provide a a very competitive base salary. And then our incentive compensation for our physicians is based on several buckets of kind of key metrics. One is patient experience. The second is quality. We have several KPIs that we follow internally to help us make sure that we're delivering quality care across our organization. Things like chemotherapy delivered within 14 days of death, which is, by definition, futile care. Percentage of patients have had documented advanced care planning discussions, meaning we're doing a good job of documenting and understanding a patient's wishes as they progress along their their care journey with us. We also have an internal staff survey that's a key focus of our uh, incentive compensation for our physicians to ensure that you know, they're being good team members in that multidisciplinary approach which we discussed earlier with all the other key teammates that uh, implement our care model. That's proven to be very successful for us in terms of driving physician retention and performance. As we go into new markets across the country, which are, you know, 99 plus percent fee-for-service focused before we arrive, we find that physicians are really attracted to our model. Uh, it allows them to practice oncology the way that they would want to be treated or want their family members to be treated, which is Again, completely separated from volume-based pressure incentives and more aligned towards just choosing the right therapies for patients to ensure that they have the maximum chance of surviving their condition and practicing great tenants of patient satisfaction and quality care. 
What I would add to that from my perspective, as you described, you know, physician leadership throughout all of the, the highest levels of decision-making in any medical practice is critical. One of the things I'm proud of, I, I recruited three physicians to serve out of the eight members of our executive team, three are physicians. So obviously Dan, our president, our chief operating officer, Matt Miller, and our chief medical officer, Yale Podnas all. Another thing I did, I felt like was really important. We created a, a system of governance that, that's kind of loosely modeled after our federal system, meaning that we've got three separate but equal branches of government. Uh, and this is loosely based on this. Obviously, there's, there's corporate governance that we have to follow. But the way we talk about it colloquially, internally, we've got the uh, Supreme Court, which is our board of directors. We've got the executive branch, which is uh, our C-suite on which you know, Dan and I sit. Then we've got Congress, which are the practicing physicians and their elected leadership, which we call the Physician Executive Committee. Each of those three branches of government check each other. We have a high level of transparency throughout each of those three branches so that each knows what the other is doing. And Another thing we did was we invite two practicing physicians to sit in and observe every meeting of our corporate board of directors. And that accomplishes two things. One, it ensures that all of our board members hear directly from physicians that are practicing on the front line so that there's that direct line of communication. And also it allows our, our practicing physicians to hear from our board about what the board is focused on and what strategic objectives the board has. And that level of transparency and collaboration, I think, has produced a lot of trust and helped us achieve the goals that, that we set out to achieve. Many oncology groups participating in value-based care models are standardizing cancer care with pathways adopted from the National Comprehensive Care Network, or NCCN. Oncology pathways, I think, are a powerful way to support a more multidisciplinary approach to care. They incorporate decision support for medical oncology, radiation oncology, surgical oncology, palliative care, and clinical trials. At TOI, I understand you have a unique purpose-built technology platform that leverages proprietary algorithms and data science to refine relevant clinical care pathways. Can you speak to how TOI uses results from extensive data analysis to dictate appropriate care pathways? And how does evidence-based decision support and high-quality clinical pathways enable oncologists to decrease unwarranted care variation in a value-based oncology model? Yeah, absolutely. I can, can address that question. Again, just taking a step back and thinking about incentives in oncology and then kind of therapeutic decision-making as two big buckets that lead to poor adherence to the MCC and guidelines. Um, in terms of in incentives, we already have covered the kind of misalignment with the cost plus reimbursement on you know 85 plus percent of revenue related to drugs for fee-for-service practices, and there not really being a direct correlation between cost and adherence to an MCC and guidelines. That's certainly one bucket. The other bucket is really therapeutic decision-making. There's been a number of studies that have been done looking at how many drugs the average physician can reliably prescribe across a variety of different specialties. And it typically is about 40 drugs in total that your average physician will know how to reliably kind of use, dose, prescribe for their specialty, which is, you know, sounds like a shockingly small number. If you look at cancer care for any given cancer stage, typically there's a dozen plus NCCN guideline approved therapeutics across infusibles and orals. So, you know, multiply that by the number of different cancer types. You can see that for your average community-based oncologist who's maybe been out of training for 10 years, is practicing on their own, maybe attend CME, lectures a couple of times a year, and does their best to keep up with the reading. 
it's very, very hard to practice in a way that's highly compliant with these ever-changing guidelines, just given the broad number of therapeutics and the rapid pace of drug discovery. So that's another big bucket that leads to kind of poor adherence to the NCCN guidelines. So the things that we've done to really take a step towards driving adherence to a much higher level is, again, on the, on the kind of analytic side and the standardization side. So we share a, a common EHR, like a lot of practices, across all of our locations. But within that EHR, you know, we've got over 200 order sets for basically every cancer stage and type, which has constant review and updates by our team of UM medical directors that sit on our UM committee ensuring that the order sets reflect the best practices as dictated by the NCCN guidelines. That is delivered across now 1,200 plus clinical encounters every single day, which means that we have a very high degree of reliability at any TOI clinic in any part of the country. If a, say, stage three lung cancer patient walks through the door, that they're going to get the exact same guideline-based therapy. That's part of the fundamental reason why we've driven our NCCN guideline adherence to such a high degree. The thing is, it requires constant upkeep because, again, oncology is very unique in the rapid pace of drug discovery. So contrast to, say, that, say, cardiology where you've had guidelines related to high-dose statin therapy that have been in place and have adjusted a little bit with tweaks over the last 10 years. If you look at the therapeutic modalities for basically any cancer type today versus 10 years ago, they're completely different. So it requires constant analysis, upkeep, review, and discussion with our, our clinical leadership. Well, gentlemen, as we think more about the applications of technology in the oncology space, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up telehealth. And although telehealth appointments aren't a replacement for in-person therapies, oncologists are routinely scheduling regular remote check-ins and constantly monitoring symptoms and finding that this helps them stay on top of their patient's health, especially amid COVID-19-related delays in cancer treatments. And despite limits on efficacy data, oncology practices across the country are pointing to expanded access and reduced ED visits as early signs of success. And many oncology providers are characterizing remote monitoring technology and digital platforms as essential care delivery tools, even as physicians and other sectors return to in-person visits. And I think what's unique in oncology is that we see the persistent utilization of video visits compared to the early stages of the pandemic, despite a trend towards normalcy for most other healthcare specialists and providers in the, in the system. Can you explain why oncology is so well-suited for virtual care? And given the outdated reimbursement structures and uh, a paradoxical lack of agility within electronic systems that have limited widespread adoption in the past. Will COVID-19 be what we need to finally have a catalyst towards more virtual care, especially in the, the future space of oncology? You know, we would always prefer to see our patients in person. Just about 100% of our doctors will tell you they would prefer to provide care face-to-face, -face, but that's not always possible. So when we can't see our patients face-to-face, -face, there are many effective methods of, of providing remote care, some that are facilitated through telehealth and, and some that are facilitated through digital patient engagement platforms and things like that. Your question about what's unique about oncology, one of the things that is unique is that the specialty relies heavily on labs, imaging, pathology, and for many diagnoses, even though we would obviously rather be in person, the physicians can make decisions based on those reports. So that's one thing that's different about oncology than others is that 
uh, we can utilize those labs, imaging, pathology, et cetera, to make decisions even if we can't see the patient in person. Well, I think I would, I would add to that is that another kind of unique aspect of our patient population, unfortunately, is that oftentimes they're suppressed either from their underlying condition or from the treatment that they might be receiving. You know, they might be neutropenic and, and really vulnerable in terms of uh, getting exposure to something like COVID-19 or, you know, during our annual flu season, getting flu and having that being a, a truly life-threatening diagnosis for them. So from that perspective, for a lot of visits, you know, telemedicine can be a preferable route of communication for the provider. They don't necessarily have to bring that neutropenic patient into the clinic where there might be other sick folks that they could get exposed to and potentially get ill. And then also, you know, oncology as a specialty has a lot of second opinion because of the severity and kind of life-changing nature of a lot of the diagnoses that we deal with and very common and reasonable for patients to expect an opinion from another physician. And telemedicine is really ideally set up for that as well. You can cover a broad geography with a you know, relatively small network of oncologist providers using telemedicine as, as a route. And that way, a large medical group or a payer um, can basically create a virtual second opinion network or provide a network of uh, very expert oncologists to do, for example, treatment reviews over a community of oncologists that might be, again, not quite as adherent to, to guideline-based care. So for those reasons, I mean, it's, it's a very effective pathway for us. Like a lot of specialties, we saw a rapid uptick during the start of COVID as we had to shift a lot of our care out of our clinics. And we have definitely kept that sort of percentage of patients, patient visits each day on telemedicine constant, even as we kind of move out of the pandemic. And we expect that only to hopefully pick up over time. On the race to value, we spend a lot of time discussing how we can best chart a path to health equity in our country. And, and telehealth kind of is one of those things that uh, touches on this health equity question. And I know it's a topic that's very important to you both as well. And it's a prime focus for oncology groups looking to deliver higher value care that addresses the stark inequities we see with cancer patients across race, gender, region, and income to access the cancer screening diagnostics and treatment that they need. And last fall, there was a damning report that came across from the American Association for Cancer Research that stated 34% of all deaths in cancer in those aged 25 to 74 could be prevented by 2035 if disparities in access to care were eliminated. And from 2003 to 2006, disparities cost the nation $230 billion in direct medical costs and indirect costs to society were more than a trillion dollars. What do you think could be done to improve equity in oncology care? And are you optimistic that we can eventually attain parity in outcomes as the industry moves towards value-based models focused on population health? Great questions. And uh, again, I can start and, and Brad, please jump in. But, you know, health equity is something that is critical to TOI's mission and really has been for the last 15 years. We we pride ourselves in our ability to serve underserved populations across a very large scale. For example, I mean, we serve over 600,000 Medi-Cal members under a value-based contract, and that's a rapidly growing care group for us. This is something we take very seriously. From my perspective, two big buckets that um, make oncology particularly susceptible to health inequity. One is the out-of-pocket costs associated with treatment for a lot of patients. As we discussed earlier, the, the drugs used for cancer care are incredibly expensive, oftentimes you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for treatment regimen. What that means is that out-of-pocket costs for a patient can sometimes be in thousands of dollars 
uh, which is really sometimes a huge barrier if you're a senior patient on a fixed income or a Medicaid patient, you just don't have access to the resources to pay for care. So one, that's a, a huge argument for why value-based cancer care is so important, simply by you know, choosing the right therapy from an efficacy standpoint, but also using cost as a parameter, you can oftentimes significantly drop the out-of-pocket cost for patients. And we've measured that in our own population. It can be literally thousands of dollars per treatment when you average it out ac across the population when you, you practice value-based oncology in terms of out-of-pocket costs. And then patient support programs. A lot of fee-for-service practices just don't have the resources or focus dedicated to patient support for managing out-of-pocket costs. That's, a, again, a key component of our model. And something that, frankly, as a society, we have to focus a lot more attention to for underserved populations receiving cancer care in order to get them appropriate access. Another area of focus is clinical trials. Huge aspect of cancer care is clinical trials, right? If you failed on guideline-approved therapy, you might be appropriate for a clinical trial. Oftentimes, that can be really a, a light of hope for, for a patient um, that might be end-stage. Unfortunately, the way clinical trials are often marketed, they're marketed primarily towards you know, English-speaking patients. And for, for folks that might have a, a different primary language, that can mean significant barriers getting enrolled in a clinical trial. They can't read the literature. They, they can't you know, communicate effectively with their provider on, on wanting to get enrolled. Um, so that's been another big focus for us is how do we evolve our clinical trials program uh, to ensure that we're, we're hitting all populations, giving equal access to all populations to those trials so that they can get educated about them early in their care and, if appropriate, get enrolled. That's another big area of focus. And lastly is just simply language proficiency uh, for providers. So um, we're lucky to, to live and practice with a large number of our clinics here in Southern California, which is wonderfully diverse. We treat you know, patients with over 30 uh, different languages. Our providers speak well over 20 languages across our clinics, we utilize translation lines. And all of that is something that we've had to develop over the last 15 years to serve these kind of broad populations and communities in, the, in this great diverse state. However, again, that's, that's just not simply a focus for the vast majority of practices across the U.S. and is creating significant inequity. That was a great answer, Dan. I think I would just add, you know, some really interesting and scary stats that go along with the, the financial toxicity of cancer care and the negative outcomes that come along with it. So one in four cancer patients go bankrupt within two years of their diagnosis. Uh, one in three go bankrupt within five years of their diagnosis. One in three Medicare patients report not filling their prescriptions due to cost. And uh, over half, over one in two cancer patients go into debt to afford their care. And these problems disproportionately impact lower income and minority communities. And further, these problems lead to increased mortality, decreased quality of life, lower survival rates. And so, it's imperative that we solve the financial toxicity problem in order to achieve better outcomes for these lower income and minority communities. And that's what TOI has shown to be really good at, and that's a big part of our focus. Well, it's such an important focus, and I have learned so much from you both today, and I just commend you for the, the great work that you're doing in leading value-based transformation within the field of oncology. And you know, I see where TOI is now. I mean, right now you're at 50 locations in four different states. You're serving 1.6 million lives under capitation. And I know in just the last few months, you've opened up new locations in Southern California. You've opened up your first cancer care clinic in Austin. I'm excited about the prospects of 
you know, how a model like yours can replicate at scale. Can you elaborate on your growth plans and how this aligns with your focus to provide cutting edge evidence-based cancer care throughout the country? And how are you able to replicate your care model without compromising culture and performance outcomes? And and what are the levers that you've identified to really sustain a long-term growth trajectory? You know, I think one of the nice things about the TOI story from an investor perspective is that TOI represents a company where you can do well while also doing good. Uh, we were fortunate enough to go public last year and raise several hundred million dollars, much of which we are using to reinvest in our company to replicate our care model around the country. Our vision is to be the nation's leading value-based oncology group. We think we already are the best at providing value-based oncology. But as you said, we, we were in four states from what you were reading. We have since opened uh, a clinic in Texas, so now we're in five states. But you know, it's kind of hard to say you're the nation's leading anything if you're only in four or five states. We've been very fortunate that we could access the, the public markets and the capital markets to raise enough growth capital to invest and, and start replicating our care model in new states, many of which are, are really desperate for value-based oncology. And so we're really pleased to have that opportunity to grow and expand and bring our care model to more patients around the country. That was a great answer. There was, there was another part of your question too, which you asked about you know, how we're delivering kind of consistent results across markets with all this rapid growth. And really it's a, it's a couple of different things that we focus on here as we grow. One is practice pattern consistency. So I covered earlier how we have these care sets that are uniform across all of our sites, which have a high degree of reliability in determining how we treat cancer patients in a consistent way across every single market that we enter. There's also ensuring that we've got, when we enter a new market, kind of rapid integration of all the additional value-based services that we provide in a very consistent fashion so that if a patient walks into a clinic in you know, St. Petersburg, Florida, it feels the same as the clinic in Victorville, California. And that's things like our uh, clinical trials program, our blood transfusion program, uh, which is you know, high value add to patients, meaning they can get their blood transfusions directly in our clinic instead of having to go to a hospital, obviously value to our medical group partners as well. There's ensuring our dispensary operations are up and running in a consistent way across our markets and our use of technology and other care support services with our, our utilization management team is done in a consistent fashion. That all requires a high degree of coordination. As we've transitioned to a public company over the last year, been lucky to have capital to focus a little bit more on growth. We've also invested in ensuring we've got adequate bench strength and support services to add new clinics as quickly as possible, integrate all those services. If we acquire a practice, integrate them in and get them practicing kind of the TOI way as rapidly as possible uh, once they join us. It's been a big effort, but we believe that we found a way to do it in a very kind of nimble fashion to ensure highly consistent product offerings across new markets. Well, Brad and Dan, it's been such a, a pleasure being with you today. I mean, there's definitely hope and innovation in your delivery of value-based care. I'm really excited about what the Oncology Institute is doing to advance oncology to a whole new level of specialized value-based cancer care that can really be a, a leader throughout our entire country and address these important challenges of you know, health equity, high costs, and the need for an improved care delivery model. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining us today on the Race to Value. Oh, it's our, it's so our pleasure. Thanks for having us on.